I invite you now to turn and find the scripture passage in your Bibles that we will consider this morning from Isaiah chapter 63. And you can find that in the Pew Bibles on page 739. We've been making our way through the book of Isaiah, and we come to this passage here, which is a fierce, dramatic passage before us. Be reading verses 1 to verse 6. Let us give our attention to God's holy word. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah, who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments, and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we meditate on it together. Well, the Marvels, the Avengers movies, they have been a huge hit worldwide. Perhaps some of you have seen some of these movies in the theaters or streaming online. These movies are about an organization composed of super-powered individuals, and they are described as Earth's mightiest heroes, and they are committed to the world's protection from various threats. So successful this series has been that it became the sixth highest grossing film series of all time. The movies have made around $40 billion since the first movie came out in 2008. So clearly people from around the world like the concept of Avengers. People like the idea of powerful heroes that rise up to defeat evil. And we like this in real life too, right? For example, when somebody rises up to stop evil in its tracks, we love to see an ordinary hero take down a gunman who is trying to destroy life. We like to see bad guys defeated by the good guys. Why? Because when some gross evil is uncovered and we see the ugly nature of evil right before us, and we mourn the loss of life or other good things, our hearts respond with painful anger against that evil. In the face of evil, our hearts cry out for justice. We long for 
justice. When we see evil, we want somebody to bring justice and to protect us from evil. And that's why billions of people pay lots of money to watch movies like The Avengers. Now, this passage before us is about an Avenger. Here we find no organization or team of Avengers. No, we find the sole Avenger, Jesus Christ, who promises to bring full justice and put an end to all evil. He is what our hearts truly long for. Be three points this morning. First, our cringe. Second, the cross. And thirdly, his coming. First, our cringe. Maybe you've heard this phrase, this expression, that's cringe. It's what people say, or especially young people nowadays, when something makes them feel embarrassed or uncomfortable just by hearing or seeing it. And maybe that's how you felt when you heard this passage about the wrath of God. Maybe you even said to yourself, ooh, that's cringe. Author Fleming Rutledge says this, It makes many people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God. Makes us queasy. Now why is that? Why does the wrath of God make us feel uneasy, uncomfortable? Why do we cringe at the wrath of God? I think it's this. It's because we think that God is being harsh or severe. But the only reason why we think that way is because we have turned a blind eye to some evil. We don't see how dark the evil really is in our own society around us or how dark the evil still is in our own hearts. And we can convince ourselves that our own evil is not that bad, not really deserving of righteous anger. And we all find in life some people that are evil and deplorable to us, and we think to ourselves, yeah, they deserve to be punished for what they've done. But at the same time, we look at our own evil or sinful tendencies, and we say, oh, those are acceptable. We think some people are really bad, and they deserve punishment, but I deserve mercy. And this is in part why we cringe at the wrath of God against sinners. But here is the reality we ignore. We are all deserving of God's wrath, his righteous anger. Yes, each and every one of us is what we find in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What this is saying is that all of us are guilty of contributing to the evil that exists in the world. All of us have a share in that evil. All of us are deserving, therefore, of God's righteous anger. Yes, of course, some people deserve a greater measure of punishment for greater evils that they have done. But all of us deserve to be punished for our crimes against God's holiness. To one degree or another, think of this, we all lie, we all cheat, we all steal, we all harm, we all neglect others, and we all self-indulge. Not only that, there is much good that we could do that we do not do. Why? Often because we are selfish, and we don't want to lift a finger to help other people. 
I want us to see this, that we are all deserving of God's wrath and that we cringe at the wrath of God wrongly. What should make us cringe is this, the idea of a God that doesn't care about evil. That should make us cringe. The idea that God could see great evil and just ignore it, that's cringeworthy. Think of this. Could you respect someone who witnesses firsthand a genocide of an entire people and not even care about it? No way. You'd have no respect for that person. Then why do we cringe at the wrath of the one who witnesses every evil thought, word, and deed? And desires to bring justice. Why does that make us cringe? You see, God's wrath means, in fact, that he deeply cares. He deeply cares about the evil that is done by humans because he loves his creation, especially humanity made in his image. His anger against all evil is evidence of his love for all that is good, beautiful, and true. Pastor Tim Keller writes this, the anger of God is ultimately about love. So the love of God will often express itself in anger. Another author explains it this way. Think about how you feel when you see someone you love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. How do you respond? Do you respond with benign tolerance? Do you just show goodness and tolerate them destroying their lives and bringing their life to ruin? No. We respond with anger towards the lies and the evil that is destroying our loved one. So the author writes, real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. And she says, if I, a flawed narcissist, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? And so we find that anger isn't the opposite of love. No, hateful indifference is the opposite of love. Therefore, you can't have a God of love who turns a blind eye to evil in the world. God cannot love his creation and be indifferent or passive about the evil that exists in his creation that is destroying it. If God truly loves his creation and his own beloved people, then God must arise with painful anger to put an end to all evil that has so maimed and destroyed his good creation and his people. God's wrath, you see, shouldn't make us cringe because a God of love must be a God of righteous anger. And that's what the Bible is revealing to us. Isaiah has already shown us in previous chapters the suffering servant, Jesus, who is gentle and lowly of heart, clothed in salvation. But here he also shows us that Jesus is the anointed conqueror, clothed in mighty splendor to bring justice to the earth. The Bible reveals to us a God who is both holy in love and holy in fury. And where do we see this God of holy love and holy fury most clearly revealed? It is on the cross where Jesus Christ died. And that's our second point, the cross. Fascinatingly, there is an old motif in Christian theology and iconography that is tied to this passage here in Isaiah chapter 63. It's called the mystic 
wine press. And the pictures and the icons often depict Jesus Christ standing in a wine press, stomping upon the grapes, where Christ himself becomes the grapes in the press. And so we find that the very one who promises at the end of the age to gather up all peoples and tread upon them in fury is the same one who was first trodden upon on the cross. The one who promises to judge the nations for the evil is the one whose lifeblood was pressed out and poured out on the cross for sinners like us. This idea comes from the 4th century theologian Augustine of Hippo, And when he preached this passage in Isaiah, he said that Christ is the first grape who has willingly stepped into the wine press, ready for the pressing. And then later in the 6th century, Gregory the Great said this, Christ has trodden the wine press alone, in which he himself was pressed. For with his own strength, he patiently overcame suffering. So what's the point that they're making? It's this, that at the cross we find God's holy love and holy fury when Jesus there metaphorically stepped into the winepress for us. When we realize that Jesus is God himself, we find that nobody can claim that God treats sin and evil as a trivial thing. He takes it very seriously. The cross of Jesus keeps us from thinking that God is mainly holy, with a bit of love, or mainly loving with a bit of holiness. In Jesus, we find God who became man, who was trodden upon by humans, by his own divine wrath. We find divine love and divine holiness combined together at the cross. When Jesus had his last meal with his disciples before he went to the cross, you remember that he told them that cup of wine symbolized his blood. He was basically saying to his followers, I am entering into the wine press of God's wrath for you. I will be pressed, and my lifeblood will splash out, spill out, pour out for you. Take this, my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he enter into that wine press of God's wrath? Well, Jesus, the righteous one, went to the cross in order to suffer the punishment that we all deserve. As we saw earlier, we're all guilty and deserving of God's wrath. He went to the cross, as the text says, speaking righteousness, mighty to save. God incarnate went to be nailed and hanged on a tree in order to pour out his lifeblood so that justice would be served and forgiveness could be given. This is what we considered last Sunday in our evening service when we looked at 1 John 2, verse 2, where it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation refers to a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God and satisfies justice. Propitiation is a substitutionary sacrifice that takes that punishment that was deserved by a guilty party and takes it upon another, the substitute, to absorb it and deal with it, satisfying justice and giving forgiveness. And that is what Jesus is for us, the propitiation for our sins. And at the cross, we find that God proved he is both love and justice. 
That means that God is willing to forgive any sinner who calls on his name, but he doesn't do that at the expense of justice. No. God can't forgive wrongdoing without punishing evil. For God to be good and loving, he must also be just. He can't just sweep evil under the rug. That's indifferent to it. That's apathetic to to evil. If God did that, he'd be hatefully indifferent towards evil, which would make God himself evil. But God, as we see at the cross, is not indifferent to evil at all. And the cross proves it to us. God is so committed to his furious vengeance against evil to bring full justice that in order to forgive and redeem some, he was willing to take the punishment for them. He was willing to enter into the wine press and be pressed for us. You've probably seen those stickers on the back of cars. Maybe you have one yourself. Don't tread on me, right? An expression of liberty and self-defense. Well, strikingly, the Son of God was willing to be tread upon, tread upon by the Romans, the Jews, and as well by his own divine anger. He was willing to be tread upon. He came to give us the good wine of his salvation, the cup of blessing that we bless, pouring out his lifeblood on the cross for us. And when you see by faith Jesus on the cross and you think about how he entered into that winepress of God's wrath for you, the cringe that you might feel before the wrath of God should disappear. It should totally evaporate. All uneasiness about God's anger against evil is alleviated by the cross because There we see how committed God is, both to his love and his holiness, forgiveness and justice, mercy and wrath. The cross of Christ, rightly understood, should make us ashamed, ashamed for thinking that God's wrath is cringe. It's not cringe. The cross is beautiful. Rather, what happened on the cross is pure beauty, love, and holiness, perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus, dying under divine wrath, and yet sustained by divine love for his own. There's nothing so beautiful, so true, and so good as this, Jesus upon the cross for guilty sinners like you and like me. And why do we believe this to be true? Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, and he is alive. And I bring you the good news that Jesus is alive and well, even this morning, still speaking in righteousness and still mighty to save. But you better make a decision about your relationship with Jesus and who he is to you. Because as truly as he first entered into that wine press as a grape and was trodden upon, so surely he will come again. And when he returns, he will be the one doing the treading as this passage relates to us. And so our third point, we consider his coming. I'm not sure if you notice in the passage, it is dramatic. Not only because of the vivid and descriptive imagery here, but also the suspense that exists in the dialogue between Isaiah as he watches the avenger coming, this conquering king, and his dialogue with him. He asks, who is this who comes? And then this description is presented to us what isaiah sees this man he's coming towards isaiah he's strong he's marching with vigor he's dressed for action in splendid apparel and he's covered in blood 
It reminds me of those action movies, you know that scene that almost always appears in an action movie, the slow motion one when the hero is running towards the camera and then behind him there's this massive explosion, right? That's kind of what Isaiah is describing here for us. We've seen Jesus as a suffering servant, the one who's gentle and lowly, but here we see him as the victorious Lion of Judah. As C.S. Lewis wrote about the lion Aslan in his books, The Chronicles of Narnia, it is true of Jesus as well. Is this Jesus safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is king. We find he is not safe, but he is good, and he is king. And he is the risen king who is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And there's something that this text emphasizes about his coming that I want to unpack for us a bit. Notice in verses 4 to 6, Christ speaks about his solitude, that he has no team. He is the sole avenger. He is alone in this work. Just as there was nobody to stand up and help him for the work of salvation, so too in judgment there will be none to help him. Why? Because no one else is worthy to judge the nations. As we saw earlier, none of us is righteous. We are all deserving of being crushed like grapes. So who are we to go around crushing other people for their crimes? Vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is the Lord's. Only Jesus is worthy, and so only Jesus will judge the living and the dead on the last day. And that's the picture that Isaiah is showing us here. Know this. Nobody else will judge you after death. Not your friends, not your family, not the world. Only Jesus. Only Jesus will judge you. And so again, you better get to know Jesus by faith and trust in him. In our passage, the soul avenger here speaks as one who has already trodden the winepress. The vision is of Jesus after his second coming. And so, know this, he shall indeed come again. It is certain. And for what purpose? Look at verse 4. He says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. It's probably better translated there, the year of my redeemed had come, his redeemed ones. The meaning is this, that Jesus is coming back for the sake of his redeemed ones. For the sake of the elect, his chosen, beloved people, he will come back to bring justice to all the earth and vindicate his redeemed people, those whom he bought with his precious blood. He will bring full and final justice. Every wrong will be set right. Every evil deed, Jesus will determine the appropriate punishment. The king who was trodden is coming back to do the treading. And in Revelation chapter 19, we are told about Jesus' second coming. And John picks up this motif of the winepress of God's wrath. And I want you to listen to this description. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So friends, as you hear that, I trust that God has worked on your heart today through his word. And I hope that the cross of Christ has turned your cringe before the wrath of God into admiration of his love and his fury. And I pray and implore you to turn away from your sins, to trust in Jesus Christ with all your heart. Find him now by faith while he is still mighty to save sinners like you and like me, lest you find him in his second coming, mighty in vengeance. Let me close with the words we sang earlier from Psalm 2. Therefore, kings, be wise, be warned. Rulers of the earth, give ear. Come with awe and serve the Lord. Mingle joy with trembling fear. Kiss the sun, his anger turn lest you perish in the way, for his wrath will quickly burn. All who trust in him, blessed are they. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we do rejoice that all who trust in you are blessed indeed. And we thank you that you have come and that you first entered into the winepress, and you were pressed and poured out your lifeblood to give us the forgiveness of sins and to bring uh, justice before your own face, O God, on our behalf, that you might be the one who is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have found you mighty to save, and that in your blood, through it, we have life eternal. And Lord, we pray and ask as well that as we prepare for your second coming, the return of the king in vengeance to bring full and final justice that you would prepare our hearts. And if there is anyone here, Lord, who has not yet come to know you by faith, to refuge in you, O Jesus, we ask that you would bring conviction of sin, that you would draw them out of their sinfulness, and draw them to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit, even now, this morning, through your word. We ask this for your glory and for the sake of all, that they too might find refuge and blessedness in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Loved ones, let's...